Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Patrick Kiesling, and I'll be your host. Today, we are joined by Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan, a board-certified and fellowship-trained pediatric otolaryngologist. Today, we will be discussing tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia. Dr. Balakrishnan, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Thanks very much, Patrick. So let's get started. Today's topic is another key concept within the field of pediatric otolaryngology and pediatric airway management specifically. First, let's define the topic of today's discussion. What is a tracheoesophageal fistula and what is esophageal atresia? Tracheoesophageal fistula is generally defined as an abnormal communication between the trachea and the esophagus. So the trachea and the esophagus each has a lumen and those should be separated by what's often called the party wall. If there's a defect in that wall, then we have a fistula. Keep in mind that this is different from a laryngeal cleft or a laryngotracheoesophageal cleft, which extends from the interarytenoid space downwards as one big opening, as opposed to these fistulae, which are a more focal opening. So we think about tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia often in combination. You may see TEF slash EA, or if you're using British spelling, TOF slash EA, because a lot of these things coexist. And this is particularly true for congenital tracheoesophageal fistula, which is present at birth and usually shows up symptomatically right at birth or is often prenatally diagnosed, but can sometimes present later in life, particularly if it is a small fistula or a relatively high fistula in the trachea. Congenital TE fistula usually occurs in association with esophageal atresia, which again is a discontinuity of the esophagus. However, it can exist in isolation as well, less commonly. Contrast congenital TE fistula with acquired TE fistula, which come from a variety of etiologies, usually traumatic, for instance, secondary to a long-term intubation or tracheostomy. Button batteries are a relatively common culprit in children. Iatrogenic causes, inflammatory or infectious causes, and malignancy. And these can occur in both adults and children. And interestingly, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, prolonged endotracheal intubation was associated with a higher rate of TE fistulas in patients with covid So congenital TEF have a standardized classification system. There have been numerous different classification systems over the years, but before we go through the presentation and diagnosis of this condition, uh, let's outline the different types of TEF that we can encounter. Though podcasts are not a visual media, can you walk us through the TEF classification system? Again, if you think of the trachea and the esophagus as essentially two tubes adjacent to each other running parallel, then the different configurations of the fistula and the esophageal atresia are what determine the classification. There are a bunch of different classifications. The most common one is the gross classification, which is type A through E. Type E is also known as an H-type, and we'll discuss why in a moment. So a type A fistula is isolated esophageal atresia without a TE fistula. In other words, the trachea and esophagus are anatomically separate. There's a normal airway in terms of patency and no connection to the esophagus, but the esophagus is atretic with a blind pouch extending from the upper esophageal sphincter down to the bottom of the atretic segment, and then separately from the atretic segment down to the lower esophageal sphincter. And this accounts for about 10% of cases. It's the second most common type. Type B fistulae are esophageal atresia with proximal TE fistula. In other words, the esophageal atresia is a dead end pouch on the upper end that connects to the trachea and then the lower portion of the esophagus connects to the stomach but not to anything else and you can imagine why this would be quite problematic because anything you swallow funnels directly into the trachea this is 
on one of the least common types, it's less than 1%. Uh, type C is the most common, and this is esophageal atresia with distal fistula. In other words, you have an isolated blind pouch for the proximal esophageal segment, and then the fistula connects to the distal esophageal segment, which then connects to the stomach. This is about 85% of cases. Type D is a dual fistula with atresia. So both the upper atretic stump of the esophagus and the lower atretic stump both connect to the trachea, but the esophagus is discontinuous. This is also quite uncommon, 1% to 2%. And then your type E, also known as an H-type fistula, is there's no esophageal atresia and it's an isolated fistula. And the reason it's called H-type is if the esophagus and trachea are the vertical limbs of the le capital letter H, the fistula forms the crossbar. And so it looks like a letter H. And this is about 2 or 3% of patients. Keep in mind as well that you can have more than one tracheoesophageal fistula in the same patient. While we move on to pathogenesis, how do TE fistulas form? That's a great question that we don't really know the answer to. But in general, we think that it's a result of failure of recanalization of the esophagus during embryologic development or alternatively failure of development of the tracheoesophageal septum. So normally the dorsal foregut should separate from the ventral trachea by sometime around day 26 of embryologic development. And if that doesn't work properly, then you get a defect in the septation or partition of the foregut into esophagus and trachea. There are some people who argue, for instance, that there may be branches of embryonic lung buds that don't branch properly, and that can create a fistula tract. But really, to be honest, we don't fully understand why these happen. It is important to know that these fistulae can be associated with certain syndromes, which suggests that there is probably some genetic component to them. For instance, Vactoral and Charge syndrome are commonly associated with these. We'll discuss Vactoral and Charge syndrome in just a little bit here, but as we move on to presentation and diagnosis, how do these patients typically present? Really a pretty broad range based on the type of fistula and the size of the fistula. So if there is an esophageal atresia, then patients, particularly if there's not a proximal connection to the trachea, then these patients can present with polyhydramnios because the fetus can't swallow amniotic fluid. Uh, and this occurs in about two-thirds of pregnancies with esophageal atresia. If you have a tight esophageal stenosis without an atresia, then it may disguise that. If you have an esophageal atresia with a narrow distal fistula, that can have a similar finding as well, uh, because again, it's just hard for the fluid to drain as it's swallowed, essentially. Patients can be asymptomatic at birth, but often they present early with difficulty managing secretions, drooling, coughing and choking, difficulty to feed, cyanosis with feeds, respiratory distress with feeds, and so on. Depending on the specifics of the geometry of the atresia and the fistula, you can get aspiration with sequelae of that, including atelectasis, pneumonia, respiratory distress. And you can also get gastric distension, particularly if there's uh, positive pressure ventilation given and you have a fistulous connection to the distal esophagus. If there's enough aspiration, you, get, you can get uh, chemical tracheobronchitis or pneumonitis with secondary compromise of the respiration as well. Rarely, the H-type TEF kids, again, these are pretty uncommon, they can present later and can be quite asymptomatic, or they can may show up later in childhood or adolescence or even adulthood with chronic choking and gagging with feeds, recurrent pneumonias or respiratory infections, what looks like refractory asthma, things like that. Once some version of a TEF or esophageal atresia is suspected, how do we go about making a diagnosis? Often these patients are diagnosed prenatally, things like ultrasound or prenatal MRI. But once the child is delivered, then often this is detected by trying to pass a catheter or feeding tube into the stomach. And if there's 
an esophageal atresia, the catheter will often stop somewhere between 10 and 15 centimeters. And if there's not a proximal fistula, you can see on x-ray that the catheter is curled in the upper pouch. Barium swallow studies are not usually recommended because if you have a lot of barium spilling into the airway, it can cause pneumonitis or aspiration and can be fatal. You can consider an esophagram, particularly in an older child, if you're worried about isolated TE fistula. Uh, belly films can be useful as well, depending on your degree of suspicion and the type of TE fistula that's present. So if there's gas in the stomach and small bowel, then there's probably a connection from the airway to the distal esophagus, allowing air to enter the bowel. Whereas if a gasless abdomen is noted, then you may have esophageal atresia either without a fistula or with a proximal fistula. Some people talk about putting water-soluble contrast in the proximal pouch and seeing where it goes, but that's not commonly used, and there's a concern that it could be regurgitated and aspirated. H-type fistulae are often quite hard to detect, either as a single or as a second fistula. You can try things like upper GI series with thickened water-soluble contrast, CT scans with 3D recons. Sometimes you can actually see the fistula tract, etc. But honestly, at that point, you're talking about doing bronchoscopy and esophagoscopy sometimes simultaneously to really identify and probe the fistula tract. And once this diagnosis of esophageal atresia or TEF has been made, I assume there's variation in management based on the type and severity found in each patient. Could you talk about what some of our listeners may have heard about, which is the Watterson classification and how you approach initial treatment in these patients? Sure. So there's different classification systems. There's the Watterson classification, which is like 60 years old at this point. There's the Montreal classification. They account for different consequences and, and associated factors like birth weight, presence of pneumonia, identification of other congenital anomalies, and so on, ventilator status in the case of the Montreal classification. But to be really honest with you, we don't use those often at all in otolaryngology. Typically, these kids are managed in collaboration with the neonatal ICU and the pediatric surgery team. And so, you know, those classifications, I, I have really not seen them used regularly. Regardless if you choose to use those or not, you really need to stabilize the patient first and then consider surgical intervention or other things later. And so managing the airway and finding a safe way to feed the patient are really the key. And then, of course, helping them manage their secretions. So to maintain and protect the airway, you may need to intubate the patient Ideally, if you have to do that, you can place the ET tube with the cuff distal to the fistula. But that can be very challenging because in many of these children, the fistula is at or very close to the carina. Many pediatric surgeons prefer non-invasive ventilation and negative pressure ventilation. In other words, not blowing air into the child because then you're likely to blow air through the fistula and distend the stomach, which can make both the repair and ventilation around that time very challenging. Tracheostomy may be needed, but rare that it's needed right up front. Esophageal atresia typically managed with continuous suctioning with a catheter in the blind esophageal pouch to reduce the secretion burden and decrease aspiration risk. Positioning the child with the head up a little bit. You may need to use antibiotics, typically not done prophylactically, but if there's evidence of aspiration pneumonia or other pulmonary sequelae. If you have to repair in a delayed fashion, you can consider TPN, though of course that has its own drawbacks. And if there's a distal fistula, in some cases, a gastrostomy tube can be indicated to decompress the stomach if distension is causing respiratory compromise. And once these patients are medically optimized, uh, what does surgery and the post-op period look like for them? So the de definitive management has two goals. It's to separate the trachea and the esophagus and then restore and maintain their patency and function of each of those pathways. So in tracheoesophageal fistula, you typically separate the trachea and the esophagus. In the standard approach, that's done by ligation of the fistula. 
If it's a high fistula, that can be done via a cervical approach, for instance, in some H-type fistulae. For the rest, though, typically either thoracotomy or a thoracoscopic approach is used by the pediatric surgeons. In open repair, typically it's a right posterolateral thoracotomy uh, at the fourth intercostal space with extraporal dissection. Some surgeons will just ventilate both lungs. Some prefer single lung ventilation. You reflect the lung anteriorly on the right side, and then you identify the fistula and divide it, close the trachea with interrupted suture, and then some surgeons will interpose intercostal muscle or other tissue. Thoracotomy, of course, can have significant morbidity like chest wall deformity, ventilation difficulties, thoracic nerve damage, scoliosis, things like that. Though those are relatively uncommon. For esophageal atresia, uh, that's actually in some cases more challenging, and it depends on how long the gap is. If it's what's called a long gap esophageal atresia, in other words, too far apart for, to pull the ends together and anastomose them, that's more challenging. If, if you can pull them together, similar approach to the TE fistula, you identify the vagus nerve, separate that away, and then dissect up the proximal esophagus to the thoracic inlet, uh, mobilize the distal esophagus, and then anastomose them typically in a single layer full thickness repair using interrupted suture. If it's a long gap, though, you ideally feed them through a G-tube distally and then delay repair and let the esophagus grow. There are procedures like the Fokker procedure where you use sutures over time to create traction to pull the halves together. Or a new development is sometimes magnets will be placed on either end of the fistula to actually help pull the ends together and sometimes create an anastomosis spontaneously. Uh, if none of that's possible, you can do things like esophageal replacement with colon or jejunum, gastric transposition, gastric pull-up, things like that, but those are less often needed. Typically, the thoracoscopic technique is what is used. Afterward, typically a nasogastric tube is placed uh, at the time of repair under direct or endoscopic visualization, and that, that's considered a critical tube. And then typically there's a chest tube placed to drain the pleural space or extrapleural space afterward. And once surgery is uh, performed for these patients, what should we be thinking about in the immediate post-op period? And following that, what does long-term follow-up look like for these patients? Yeah, that's a great question, and it really varies based on the surgeon and the institution. So typically, initially, tube feeding is used to bypass the anastomosis and let it heal, and reflux control is really important as well. Many surgeons will prefer PPI treatment for at least a year after repair and longer if there's evidence of ongoing reflux. Once the child has had a chance to heal, and again, this is really variable depending on the surgeon, you can start oral feeds, but typically prior to that, an esophagram is done to look for things like stricture and anastomotic leak. In terms of other things to watch out for, many of these children will have disturbed peristalsis if there's esophageal atresia. Uh, so poor motility or dysmotile or amotile segments of the esophagus, you can have delayed gastric emptying. And of course, these can cause dysphagia, eventual food impaction, uh, delayed gastric emptying, reflux, which can then all contribute to things like anastomotic leak and stricture. Strictures are fairly common at the esophageal anastomotic site. And so these children may need interval endoscopies, esophagrams, dilations, and so on. If there's an anastomotic leak, many of them can close spontaneously with conservative management, uh, but sometimes they need to be revised or repaired. And then in the long term, it's active surveillance for things like stricture, uh, management of reflux and dysphagia, and then the prevalence of Barrett esophagus is about four times higher in patients with a history of esophageal atresia and repair. So there's some increased risk of esophageal cancer as well. So you got to monitor that. One other thing I should mention, which I think is important from an airway standpoint is that many children with tracheoesophageal fistula will have significant tracheomalacia, and they may require long-term management for that. 
In addition, there is an increased risk of laryngeal cleft if you have a history of tracheoesophageal fistula, and so that should be checked for and dealt with if needed as well. Given that reflux does seem to be a major issue or something we really need to be thinking about in these patients for years following surgery, what role does fund application have for these patients? As it is, even without TE fistula or esophageal atresia, fund application is somewhat controversial. But in these patients specifically, fund application likely does not help, and in fact, it can make things worse. Because as I mentioned, many of these patients have esophageal dysmotility. And so if you further narrow the connection between the esophagus and stomach with the fund application, you can have esophageal stasis, pooling of secretions or swallowed material in the esophagus with spillover into the airway and aspiration. If there's really poorly controlled reflux, you can consider fund application, but you want those patients to have failed maximal medical therapy, you know, to have consequences of the GERD, such as severe respiratory compromise, cyanotic spells, etc. Or you can consider transpyloric feeding as well. But really, again, fund application is something that would have to be considered very carefully. And in these kids, of course, you want to rule out things like stricture and other esophageal pathology like eosinophilic esophagitis before you commit them to fund application. And as we mentioned earlier, when patients do present with TEF or esophageal atresia or some combination of the two, what additional testing or evaluation should they undergo outside of the specific tracheal or esophageal management to look for other pathologies that, that may be present? So again, about 50% of these patients will have a, an additional congenital anomaly, so a full physical exam and history is really important. The most common syndromic association is vectoral. V-A-C-T-E-R-L, which stands for vertebral anomaly, imperfect anus, cardiac anomalies, tracheoesophageal fistula, renal anomalies, and limb anomalies like radial agenesis. So if you see esophageal atresia or TE fistula, these patients should have a belly ultrasound to check their kidneys. They should get an echo and a limb exam as well. And these patients do have a poorer prognosis due to these other issues with greater mortality uh, than isolated TEF or EA. Charge syndrome is also associated, even though TFEA is not part of the acronym, which stands for coloboma, heart defect, atresia of the coena, uh, retarded growth, genital abnormalities, and ear or hearing anomalies. Uh, but again, many of these patients will have TEFEA, laryngeal cleft, and other such things. Well, as we wrap things up here, are there any other points that um, we should make sure to consider when thinking about uh, these patients? One quick thing, just as otolaryngologists and airway surgeons our role in these patients is often diagnosis, airway management, and then subsequent management of things like tracheomalacia, laryngeal cleft, et cetera. But we do have some role in repair of the TE fistula, for instance, with H-type fistulae, which in some cases are amenable to endoscopic repair. And in the case of large or very refractory fistulae, for instance, in the case of button battery-related fistulae, where slide tracheoplasty can be a really useful technique that we bring to the table. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Balakrishnan. We really appreciate you uh, being here today and uh, helping us learn more about this important topic. Thanks so much, Patrick. I appreciate your time. In summary, tracheoesophageal fistula, or TEF, is an abnormal communication between the trachea and esophagus with a defect in the wall normally separating these two lumens. Esophageal atresia, or EA, is a discontinuity of the esophagus that frequently coexists with TEF especially in the case of congenital TEF, though can exist independently as well. Congenital TEF is frequently diagnosed shortly after birth or prenatally, while acquired TEF can arise from a number of etiologies, including trauma, caustic congestion, including button battery, and malignancy, and is seen in adults and children. 
Twiggy esophageal fistulas are categorized most commonly according to the gross classification system, types A through E. Broadly speaking, congenital TEF results from failure of recanalization of the esophagus or failure of development of the tracheoesophageal septum, though the process is not fully understood. In terms of presentation, polyhydramnios occurs in about two-thirds of pregnancies with esophageal atresia. Ultrasound, or prenatal MRI, can diagnose this condition prenatally. Most commonly, patients can be asymptomatic at birth, but will soon present with symptoms of poor secretion management, with difficulty swallowing, coughing, choking, and regurgitation. Aspiration can also occur along with gastric distension and chemical tracheobronchitis, depending on the anatomy of the TEF. After birth, esophageal atresia is frequently diagnosed when trying to pass a feeding tube or catheter into the stomach, stopping about 10 to 15 centimeters in. As long as the proximal fistula is not present, you will be able to see the catheter curled in the upper pouch. Barium swallow studies are not recommended because barium in the airway can cause pneumonitis and can be fatal. You can consider an esophagram for diagnosis, especially in an older child. Abdominal films can demonstrate gas in the stomach and small bowel, and this may help diagnose the type of TEF present. H-type fistulae can be quite difficult to diagnose and may be best identified with bronchoscopy and esophagoscopy simultaneously. In managing these patients initially, the big takeaway is the need to medically stabilize the airway and feed the patient. To maintain and protect the airway, you may need to intubate the patient. Non-invasive negative pressure ventilation can also be used, while positive pressure is contraindicated. Esophageal atresia is managed with continuous suctioning. Definitive surgical treatment aims to separate the trachea and the esophagus and restore and maintain their patency and function. Tracheoesophageal fistulas are surgically addressed with ligation of the fistula. Esophageal atresia repair can be more challenging, especially if there is a long gap between segments, which may require staged repair. An NG tube will be placed in the OR under direct visualization at the time of anastomosis. Tube feeding will be used to bypass the anastomosis to facilitate healing, with PPI treatment typically lasting for at least a year. An esophagram can be used prior to allowing oral intake to assess for stricture or leak. Dysmotility of the esophagus is common and can contribute to complications, and esophageal stricture is common at the anastomotic site. Now, on to our questions. First up, what are the different tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia types according to the gross classification, and how common are they relative to each other? Type A is isolated esophageal atresia without tracheoesophageal fistula. These make up about 10% of cases and are the second most common type. Type B is esophageal atresia with proximal TEF. This is the least common subtype, comprising less than 1% of cases. Type C is esophageal atresia with distal TEF. And this is the most common subtype of TEF, making up about 85% of cases. Type D is actually two fistulas with the upper and lower atretic portions of the esophagus connecting to the trachea. This is very uncommon, making up about 2% of cases. And finally, type E, otherwise known as type H, is an isolated tracheoesophageal fistula without esophageal atresia, making an H shape between the lumens of the esophagus and the trachea through an isolated fistula. 
This subtype makes up about 2 to 3% of cases. Next question. When managing patients in the postoperative setting, what esophageal pathologies must be closely watched? Control of reflux in these patients is critical to facilitating proper anastomotic healing. Dysphagia is very common in this population, and stricture and dysmotility are common, yet critical complications following surgical repair. Importantly, these patients are four times as likely to develop Barrett's esophagus and are therefore at greater risk of esophageal cancer. And finally, last question. What airway pathologies and congenital associations are seen with tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia? Fifty percent of these patients will have an additional congenital anomaly, so it is critical to assess for these associated pathologies. Tracheomalacia and laryngeal cleft are additional airway pathologies that can be seen in association with TEF. The most common association with TEF is Bactrol, and patients should undergo the appropriate diagnostic evaluations to assess for these anomalies. Charge syndrome is also associated with TEF, though TEF is not part of the classic phenotypic collection seen in charge. All right, that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.